Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. I am Dr. Bill Kanaski. This is brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, Inc. All your litigation support services all in one place. Please visit us at www.courtroomsciences.com. I'm approaching 100 podcasts, and this is the first one I'm actually nervous because I, I have one of my personal uh, just uh, idols because <laughs> I am a JFK uh, assassination uh, junkie myself. I read everything. I've been following this, this man for several years. I think this is the number one, number one researcher regarding the JFK assassination in the world, in, in my book at least, Mr. Jefferson Morley. Mr. Morley, how are you doing today? I'm very good. It's nice to be here. I, I'm so excited that you're on. Thank you so much uh, for your time. And so a couple hours ago, I'm in my kitchen and my wife's like, are you excited? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm nervous about this. I don't want to screw this up. And so I asked my wife, I said, well, what do you want? What, what would you like me to ask Mr. Morley? And of course she says, well, I want to know who shot, I want to know who shot JFK. I'm like, I'm not asking him. <laughs> I'm not asking them that. No, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. It's <laughs> so, so then I go. You can answer quick. Yeah. I, I so then I go to my 13 year old son. I said, "What would you like me to ask, Mr. Morley, about JFK?" And his response was, "Who is JFK?" <laughs> and I said, "I'm definitely well, that's part of the story." <laughs> um, yeah. So, Mr. Morley, you know, what was it um, I, you said, you know, in, in the 1980s, this is when you started this path to research the JFK assassination. What, what was it uh, about the topic that that really set the hook with you? Well, at first, it was this kind of cultural phenomenon of the assassination. And I was especially interested in books and fiction about the assassination, movies that had assassination themes. Um, a lot of movies in the 1970s, like Taxi Driver and The Parallax View and Nashville, they all have a, an assassination theme. So people were picking up and thinking about, you know, what was the JFK assassination about? And I was really interested in that as a kind of cultural phenomenon. As a reporter, I didn't really see like I could do anything with it. I didn't have any original sources or anything. I, I felt like that wasn't really part of it. It wasn't until 1992 that that began to change. And that was the second phase of my interest when Oliver Stone put out his movie JFK, which was, you know, this big screen epic kind of conspiratorial story, you know, a Hollywood A-list actors, you know, lots of talent, very interesting screenplay, very compelling piece of cinema, even if you didn't agree with it. And it created this huge explosion in, in Washington. I had just started at the Washington Post in 1992 as an assistant editor. And, you know, the newsroom was, was really debating this and Stone was denounced furiously. And it was, it was like a live political issue, even though it was 30 years old. And I thought that was really interesting. And that kind of revived my interest in it. And then Congress, in response to the movie and the success of the movie, which was really an indictment of the US government saying, you know, there was some kind of conspiracy that that killed, president, that killed the president, that Kennedy wasn't killed by one man alone for no reason, which is the official theory, mm -hmm. right? Stone was saying, no, there was a policy, there was a, a, you know, there was a policy conspiracy to defeat the liberal president and defeat his policy. And so that was still a live issue, you know, a very live issue. How do we understand this key event in American history? So in response to Stone's movie, 
you know, Stone took a hell of a beating. And I, I'll say this at the top of, of the story. Oliver Stone is a friend of mine. And I think he's a good guy. I mean, you might not like him, but he is super smart and he makes good movies. Yeah. And he did something, and he really did something great in JFK. Not only is it a great piece of cinema, but at the end, he said, you know, if you want to do something about this, most of the JFK assassination records by the U.S. government are still secret 30 years later. So write to your congressman and ask them to release these records. And while T St Stone did take a beating and they, people said, oh, you know, he made up this and he made up that. Well, yeah, he did make up stuff. It's a Hollywood picture. It's not a documentary. You know, that happens in any, in any picture. Did he know what he was talking about? Yeah. Did he make stuff up? Not much. I mean, he had startling things to say, but they were all based in the startling fact of the president of the United States was shot dead in broad daylight and no one was ever brought to justice for the crime. You know, and Stone kind of took that and he pushed that out on the world and he said, no, there's another way to think about it. So Congress passes this law. They get in and why the hell are all the JFK records still secret? And so Congress is shamed into doing the right thing. And so they pass a pretty good law, the JFK Records Act of 1992, a strong open government law, which basically said all government agencies have to release all of their JFK records. And we're going to set up an independent board, which will review these records and take requests from the agency for, you know, does this or that need to be withheld for reasons of privacy or national security? But we're going to basically make everything public. And they took the decision about those records out of the hands of the agency. So the final say about a CIA document or an FBI document, that was put in the hands of this independent board. It was not in the hands of the agency. And that's very unusual in, in the U.S. government. Usually the agency has the final say. And so all these records began to come into the public domain. And that's when I got interested as an investigative reporter, because there were going to be new records that nobody had ever seen. Right. So yeah. there was something new to report. You know, there would be something new to report. And so as the government, CIA, FBI, other government agencies began to comply with the law in the 1990s, this, a lot of new records came out. And so I started reporting on what was in those records. And that's when I got hooked on it as an investigation, not just a cultural phenomenon, but, you know, what, what, what really was the story? What was the, you know, what truly happened? And I didn't have a theory. I always thought that the discourse of, you know, conspiracy theories around JFK's assassination. I mean, as a reporter and at the Washington Post, I didn't write about theories. You know, you wrote about what happened to the best you could figure it out, you know? And so that was always my approach was find new facts, you know, put them in context and say what they mean. And I wasn't trying to solve the assassination. Why should I try and solve the assassination? Why should I develop a conspiracy theory? I'm not a lawyer. I don't know anything about conspiracy law. You know, I'm not competent to write about that. I'm competent to write about the CIA and how it works and, you know, talk to former CIA people. That was my strength. That's what I could bring to the story. And so that's really what I set out to do. And that's, that's what I've been doing for, you know, these 30 years that I've been reporting on the story. Yeah, and, and doing a fantastic job uh, of it, uh, Mr. Morley. Now, most of our audience members um, are, are trial attorneys. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions I had, you know, 
making the huge assumption. This is a huge hypothetical question. Let's say Jack Ruby doesn't kill Lee Harvey Oswald and Oswald actually goes to trial for the murder of JFK. Based on what we know, does he get convicted? Cause there's boy, there's a lot of loose ends there. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great question. And one interesting thing is um, people have held mock trials of Oswald over the years, and they've always ended in a hung jury. Uh, Oswald has never been uh, convicted outright. And I don't think he would have been because um, the evidence is, chain of evidence and the forensic evidence is, is very polluted. It's very compromised. A, a good trial attorney could attack that relentlessly. Um, the individual pieces of evidence, the paraffin test, Oswald did not test positive for paraffin on his cheek or had to, According to the test, he hadn't recently fired a gun. Um, uh, you know, the fact that the, that the chief suspect is murdered is, in fact, a suspicious fact. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, there, there's no disputing that. Um, and so, no, I don't think I, I don't think Oswald would have been convicted. That's that's one point. But a second point is. The U.S. government never could have held that trial because so much top secret information any, any defense attorney would have been bringing forward or asking questions about areas that are incredibly sensitive and secret and were in 1963 and 1964. And, you know, when I sued the CIA for, for JFK records, you know, 55 years later, they were telling me this is too sensitive and we're not going to show it to you. Records from 1962 and 1963 concerning Cuban exiles who had contact with Lee Harvey Oswald. That's a JFK record under the JFK Records Act, quite clearly. And, and, and the government won't release them. So these were highly sensitive matters. And you know, to put Oswald on trial, I mean, it, it was impossible. And I believe that's why he was killed, because the people who understood that Oswald coming into trial was a great danger to the CIA and FBI itself. Remember, too, Oswald denied it. Yeah. He, he was asked, you know, did you shoot the president? He said, I didn't shoot anybody. I'm just a patsy. So maybe, maybe he was guilty, but the fact that he said that has to be explained and understood. And the official story, the Warren Commission, never even published the suspect's denial. That's how unfair the Warren report was. Yeah. They did not even, the man had denied the, the, the issue in public. He had denied the crime in public to a lot of people, and they would not even report that fact in the, in the report. So the Warren Commission report has many flaws, and that's one of them. Yeah. It was not fair to the accused. We now know a whole bunch more about all the things that were withheld from the Warren Commission report. So, you know, and then you have the, the denial of the suspect himself. Oswald tells the press conference uh, the night, the day after the assassination, I, I didn't shoot anybody. I'm just a patsy. He says it on TV, it's captured on TV. And in the Warren report, they don't even quote that he didn't take responsibility for the crime. And, and you know, part of, I mean, the Warren Commission report, the assassin has no motive. They could never establish any motive why Oswald, a leftist, uh, a man who admired Kennedy for his stand on civil rights, why he would shoot the president and then deny it. I mean, uh, it seems, seems more likely if you pursue, okay, let's say his let's say his denial is accurate, then how do we explain that? 
And then, you know, then you're into uncharted territory that the government in 1963 simply wasn't willing to go there. And I think the reason is because any serious investigation of Oswald would have led to his, his connections and his, his visibility to senior CIA officers. Psychological warfare and counterintelligence officers associated with the Cuba operation. So that's kind of, to me, that's sort of what we know now that we didn't know then. Yeah, because they certainly pushed the lone nut theory pretty hard. But I think we know now this was no lone nut. This was a well-connected individual hanging around with some pretty nefarious characters, correct? Yeah. I mean, you know, Oswald is a, is a remarkable character in that he, he, he defects to the Soviet Union under curious circumstances. A high school dropout, Marine Corps dropout, decides to move to the Soviet Union. And he goes to literally the only place in the world where he could quickly get a visa to travel to the Soviet Union, and that's Helsinki. So how did Oswald know to go to Helsinki? I mean, he, he, so he, he gets into the Soviet Union in about 15 days. If he tried to go from New York, I mean, he probably wouldn't have gotten in there and it would have taken him years. And remember, he's a high school dropout, you know? So that's curious. What we now know, what we learned from the JFK disclosures in the 1990s after the film JFK came out was just how closely the CIA watched Oswald while he was there. Every piece of paper about Oswald that was collected by the US government between 1959 and 1964, every single piece of paper pretty much was forwarded to the CIA and not just anywhere in the CIA to one specific office in the, the counterintelligence staff. And it was a, an office called the Special Investigations Group. And they were mole hunters. They were doing special investigations of possible moles in the US government. And it's safe to say now that that was the first intelligence use that Lee Harvey Oswald was put to. He was used somehow, he was of interest because the CIA was looking for moles within the, within the CIA. That doesn't mean that Oswald was a mole. What it means is, is that um, probably that Oswald was kind of considered bait. If there was a mole, the mole would be interested in somebody like Oswald. So let's see who asks questions about Oswald. That seems to have been the, what was going on. That's a story that I tell in more detail in my book, The Ghost, about counterintelligence with James Angleton. Love, love the book. I'm, I'm getting that later on my outline. Trust me, that was a great, great book. Yeah. Really loved it. I've read it three times. Let's, 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 let's talk about the Garrison trial. So when I turned into a JFK junkie, it was right after Oliver Stone's film. And they really, he really portrays Garrison as a, as a hero in a very positive light. And then everything I've read since then, talk about a character assassination, um, very negative things uh, people said uh, uh, about Garrison and how he conducted himself as an attorney during that trial. What, what's the real scoop on the Garrison trial? Was it like a complete shit show or did he, was he like how he was in the movie with Kevin Costner? Um. You know, he, Kevin Costner is a very idealized version of Jim Garrison. Um, Jim Garrison intuited that there were Oswald's time in New Orleans in early in 1963 was key to understanding the assassination. And he knew that Oswald, the putative leftist, 
in fact, spent most of his time with hard right people, which really raises the possibility that he was some kind of agent provocateur or uh, infiltrator, um, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe sincerely. Um, but uh, Oswald was a, you know, he was a schemer, he was an adventurer, and his time in New Orleans is really crucial to understanding who he was and what he was trying to do and how he got caught up in a much larger set of events. So um, Garrison focused on Clay Shaw, a New Orleans businessman, who he said was a CIA, you know, uh, asset, uh, you know, uh, agent. Um, something that the, the CIA denied um, at the time. The CIA said, no, uh, Shaw was just an international businessman who sometimes gave us information on a volunteer basis after traveling overseas, something that a lot of Americans did out of perfectly patriotic motive. Um, but in fact, that was not true. And Garrison was a highly paid CIA source. And that came out in 1994, thanks to the JFK records end. And the source is impeccable. There's a man named Kenneth McDonald, who was on the CIA's historical staff, you know, a staff of historians who worked for the agency. And he went and reviewed Clay Shaw's file. And he wrote up a little memo for the record. And he said, there's no indication Mr. Shaw was involved in the assassination, but he was a highly paid CIA contract officer at the time. Highly paid contract wow. officer. So Garrison was right about that. And people maligned him and said, oh, he was wrong. He didn't know this. And he made it up. He did not make that up. Clay Shaw was a highly paid assassination, uh, uh, CIA uh, operative. And there's other, other evidence that, 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 that supports that idea. Some, some eyewitness testimony from former CIA employees. So now on the other hand, Garrison had no idea. He was like most Americans in positions of authority. Garrison had no idea how the CIA really worked and you know, who did what and you know, who was responsible. So he made a lot of mistakes. He was also the object of a full court press of harassment, infiltration, um, bad mouthing in the press, refusing to, to comply with subpoenas, taking people out of, whisking people out of New Orleans so they couldn't be interviewed. So, you know, Garrison got desperate. He was trying to, he was trying to, uh, you know, make the case in the press. He's trying to try the case in the, in the press, not in the court. I think what he was trying to do was he was trying to shake loose and get, you know, get some more people to start talking. And he never really accumulated that kind of momentum because of the incredible harassment that he faced. And, you know, his theory of the case was not quite that clear, you know, um, I mean, because he didn't really know. All he was, he was, you know, he suspected a rat and he had some power to try and do something about it and he did it. So I don't defend Garrison's, um, you know, his performance, but he was right about some things. And I think that he was right about the big picture, that the president was killed by his enemy, um, enemies in his own government. I think he was right about that. But Garrison also performed several, you know, very important functions. One, the trial of Clay Shaw was the first time that the Abraham Zabruder's film, home, home movie of the assassination itself, the first time it was shown in public. And it had a remarkable effect on the jury, um, uh, which felt, who, which said, you know, they felt there had been a conspiracy, but that Shaw wasn't involved in it. Shaw was acquitted very swiftly. So 
that was a public service. And, and also, in, in, and it's brought out dramatically in the, in the, in the film, and it's, and it's all true. Nobody, nobody ever said Oliver Stone made this up. That was the first time that we realized that the president's autopsy was controlled by the military, was controlled by generals and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who told the doctors what to do as the autopsy was going on. That's insane. Yeah. And, crazy. And, 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 and that's an, that was an amazing and important revelation because the idea that this was all cut and dried and you know no sane person would doubt it, why would the military tell a doctor what to do in an autopsy if this was also cut and dry? You know, yeah. there's no explanation for it. And Garrison was the first person to bring that out. And to this day, defenders of the officials, I mean, there's nothing they can say. They know it's true. There's no disputing. Mm -hmm. and, and so they just don't bother to explain. Well, we need a better explanation of what happened than that. You know? Got it. Um, so let's, 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 and I bounce around here, but let's, let's jump into some, um, JFK areas the, that have come up. Uh, some of these have been talked about uh, very frequently. Others really, um, have not, for example, is it true that there were plots against JFK before Dallas, uh, no, most notably, uh, Miami and Chicago. Is that true? Um, the security was very tight in Miami and there was nothing, I never saw any evidence of anything that there was a, an active plot. There were many threats to JFK when he visited Miami four days before his assassination, November 18th. And a motorcade was contemplated at one point and canceled for security reasons. JFK never appeared um, in public uh, in, in Miami in that, in that trip uh, to uh, speak to the, inter-American newspaper editors group. Um, but there was a very serious plot in Chicago on November 1st when, when President Kennedy was going to attend a, a football game um, and uh, have a motorcade through the city. And, um, you know, uh, after the president was killed, some Secret Service agents wanted to re revisit that, that plot. And see was it connected to what eventually happened and they were shut down um, and Abe Bolden the first African-American Secret Service agent was one of the ones who complained the loudest about lax security procedures and he was he was framed by J. Edgar Hoover and sent to jail so that he could not talk it's another you know a sort of shocking development that now we see it you know thank god Abe Bolden's still around and I urge everybody to check out his Facebook he's a very decent man who paid a huge price for just being doing his job, you know, and it's this is this is a this is an important thing to, to remember, Bill. You know, the president of the United States was shot dead in broad daylight, and and nobody was brought to justice for the crime. That's fairly amazing. What I find even more amazing is nobody in the U.S. government so much as lost their job. Yeah. Nobody in the CIA was fired because a known defector to the Soviet Union, an avowed communist, killed the president. Wait a second. An avowed communist killed the president and nobody lost their job at the CIA and the FBI. The guys who hate communists so much and are supposed yeah. to protect us from them, they utterly failed to protect the president. That's just obvious. No one in the CIA or FBI lost their job or the Secret Service. The only one who lost his job was a Bolden, the guy who tried to do his job. Wow. So, so you know, so... When, when we sit back and we look at this thing in historical perspective, 
you know, we really see a, a failure of the system. And this is why it's very hard for our media and our politicians to get their heads around it. The, you know, the Kennedy assassination shows our system broke down. You know, somebody was able to kill the president and get away with it. And the press didn't capture it, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't pierce it. And so we have this ridiculous debate about, you know, whose theory is right. And, you know, and that's all a sideshow to get people to talk about the theories instead of talking about the facts, which is why I've never had a theory. And I don't talk about JFK theories. I'm not really interested in them. The facts are plain and important and people can interpret them differently. People look at that and say, Jeff, I think, you know, one man alone in the Navy killed the president. Okay, that's fine. That's your theory. And I'm not going to argue with it. I'm not going to talk to you in anything else. But let's let's talk about what the common facts are here. And we have a pretty good fact pattern, you know, 55 years later. Amazingly enough, it's not complete. Yeah. You know, they're still withholding JFK records. I found that out when I sued for JFK records. And, you know, the JFK Records Act is still not quite, uh, you know, enforced. There are 15,000 JFK records in the possession of the federal government that are still redacted in one form or another, 58 years after the crime. Now, what's the explanation of that? The explanation of that is the government has something to hide. I mean, what other explanation can you do? Oh, they're hiding something, but they have nothing to hide. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if they have nothing to hide, why are they waiting 58 years later? I mean, that's a pretty absurd argument when so much is still being withheld even after Oliver Stone's heroic effort to get a huge amount of material on the record and a huge amount of material that tells us something important about our history. You know, it's an important moment in our history. So, and the government's still holding back. That's really, you know, really unfortunate, but that's the nature of the Kennedy assassination story. It's a very, very sensitive story to this day. And it must be very sensitive because um, now I know October is coming up and Joe Biden is gonna have an important decision. And I saw Donald Trump make that decision and then do a complete 180 a week later or whatever it was, because Trump said, I'm releasing all these records. And so many people, including me, were like, yes, here we go. And then it was like, oh, second thought, maybe not. There's got to be some pretty bad, if not embarrassing stuff that I mean, how would that affect society if it came out that, hey, yeah, you know, there were certain people, whether it be the military establishment, the government, the mob, whoever, if that stuff comes out, how would people deal with that? Is that the issue? Well, I mean, I, th I think one reason why it's sensitive is, you know, if, for example, it were shown that CIA, you know, specific CIA personnel had, you know, framed Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, yeah. You know, that that would be very damaging for the agency's budget next year. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and, and since the agency's budget is 15 billion dollars a year, you know, that's serious money. And, you know, no uh, royal person at the CIA is going to put their agency in danger over something that happened 60 years ago, you know, and it might cost them their job today. So it's still very politically sensitive. It could affect agency budgets today. Um, and so I think, you know, that's that's why we still we see this continuing coverage. The JFK story could affect budgets in in, in Washington in 2022, you know, uh, uh, wow. because it's still a live issue and people still care about it and talk about it. So, you know, there's not is there national security information that's being withheld? You know, there might be like one or two or five names that need to be withheld, not 15 documents. 
15,000 documents is a sign that they're trying to save themselves from embarrassment. Yeah. The information, the release of the information will not threaten the life or the security of any American. We can say that with complete and utter confidence. The release of the information may well embarrass, you know, well-known people alive and dead in the CIA with ne very negative consequences for the agency and for U.S. government. So that's, I think that's the motivation for the continuing cover. People want to hide the embarrassment of involvement or complicity. That, that makes sense. Now, after the assassination, I'm pretty sure this happened. I question the validity of it. Did the KGB turn over all of their Oswald rec records to us and say, hey, here's what we got and there's really not a lot here? And do you buy that? Uh, no, they didn't. Um, I mean, what, what happened, it's a complicated story, but what happened was a KGB officer defected in January 1964. And he said, he came to the United States and he said, I can tell you all these things. And one thing I can tell you is about the Oswald file and how we kept track of him and we were not interested in him. So the fact that a defector showed up and was saying that was regarded very suspiciously by the CIA. And so that was from a man named Yuri Nosenko, who was a, a K officer, uh, fairly high ranking. And um, that his, 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 his testimony or his, you know, his findings were not passed to the Warren Commission. The CIA said, we don't trust this man. So, um, the K, the, uh, but the Soviet Union's reaction to the assassination um, is quite interesting. Um, the, a few days after the assassination, uh, uh, Dobrynin, the Soviet ambassador received, and Dobrynin had been the Soviet ambassador in Washington for, he was the ambassador for 20 years. He was their guy in Washington. And a few days after the assassination, he, he has his first meeting with the Americans. And he's worried because Oswald was a communist. He lived in the Soviet Union. Are they going to try and blame it on us? You know, what do we say? And Dobrynin writes back to Moscow and he says, they, were, they did not want to talk about Oswald's motives or communist connections at all. <laughs> There was no curiosity about them. You know, again, the CIA and the FBI, these were organizations that prided themselves on being tough, not tough, vicious, deadly, pitiless with communists. And when it comes to the defector who killed the president, they're not interested, not even, not even talking to the Soviet Union. And so, you know, and that's because Oswald was, was radioactive because he, he was so well known to those top CIA officers. They could never open the box and say he was this guy. And so right from the start, J. Edgar Hoover and Lyndon Johnson on, on Sunday, November, 20, uh, November 25th, a few hours after Oswald has been killed, Hoover and Johnson get together and they coordinate their story. We have to convince the public that this man alone was responsible. That was the story they agreed on. And they said, you know, we have to convince the public. And that became the story that was handed down, you know. And so before the investigation had even begun, before the president had been buried. It's amazing. Before Oswald had been questioned, before Oswald had been buried, they had the solution to the crime. And there are people who say to this day, that's the solution. You know, <laughs> that is... Uh, 
to me, I mean, that could be bad faith, that could be willful naivete, uh, that could be obtuseness, but it's just not a very convincing stand, you know? Sure. So yeah. uh, that's what, you know, that's one thing that, that happened. But there's another interesting part about the Soviet reaction too, which is on November 30th, a week, uh, November 29th, a week after the assassination, Jackie Kennedy and, and, and Bobby Kennedy meet with their friend, Georgie Bolshakov. Georgie Bolshakov was another Soviet diplomat who'd been here a long time. And Georgie Bolshakov, like he grew up in Brooklyn. This guy spoke perfect English. You know, he was comfortable with America. He was a hardcore communist, no doubt about it. But the Kennedys trusted him. He'd been a back channel during the missile crisis. Yep. Like, you want to convey a sensitive message. You don't want it to get out. Georgie Bolshakov was the guy. So Bobby and Jackie call Georgie. Uh, well, they they call in a friend of theirs, William Walton, who was a friend of Jackie. He was a painter. And he was going to Moscow for a cultural exchange visit, which had been previously planned. And they took aside, Jackie and Bobby took aside uh, William Walton, and they said, we want you to convey this message to Bolshakov, who's in Moscow, and he'll take it to the Kremlin, he'll take it to the top Soviet leadership. And the message is this, uh, despite the efforts to link Oswald to the communist world, we do not believe, we do not blame you. Um, we believe the president was the victim of a domestic, major domestic conspiracy, Bobby Kennedy said he was going to run for office, maybe for governor of Massachusetts, and then he'd run for the presidency. And the message for Bolshakov and for the Kremlin was, if I regain, when I regain the presidency, I will resume my brother's policies of detente with the Soviet Union. We're trying to make peace. We're trying to wind down the Cold War. We're not going to destroy each other. We're going to figure out how to get along. And that was Bobby's message. But their premise was that JFK had been killed by his enemy within the United States, not by foreign powers, not by communists, not by Osborne. And so that was the message that the, that, that the, that the Soviet Union got from the, at the highest level very soon after that. Yeah. So um, later in the 1990s, the JFK Review Board asked the Soviet Union for its Oswald record. And it was, and they, they had a bunch of records that they had never made public. But it was one of those times of kind of rocky relations and they were ready to do it and then they changed their mind. And so we never saw, there was apparently, there was a big stack of their surveillance of Oswald while he was in the Soviet Union. So, you know, we, we missed out some of the historical record there. Oh, well, that's terrible. Um, <laughs> great, great, great stuff, Mr. Morley. We will continue our interview with Jefferson Morley in the next episode of the Litigation Psychology Podcast.